Good morning and welcome to Youth Sunday at White House First United Methodist Church. My name is David Cowan. I am the youth director here, for those of you who do not know. Uh, To start off this podcast, I have a few announcements on things that are happening in the life of the church. First of all, right after the service today is a potluck for our fifth Sunday meal. So if you're listening to this and you are not here and you would like to join us, even if you don't bring anything, you are welcome to join us in the fellowship hall uh, at around 1130, 11.45. Uh, also, this Sunday will be the last Sunday before the summer for Kids Jam and Youth. So be sure to join us tonight from 5 to 7 if you have anyone in those groups for our last meetings until August. And if you know someone who graduated in 2021, 2022, or will be graduating this May, tomorrow is the deadline to turn in the endowment scholarship application. Tomorrow, that is May 1st. There are applications outside of the sanctuary as well as downstairs outside of the fellowship hall. Also this week is the Community Day of Prayer, which is May 4th. There will be two services held at the Fran Hudson Amphitheater, one at 7.30 that morning and then one that evening at 6.30. And then on May 6th, there will be a celebration of life for Stephanie Solario at 11 a.m. with a meal to follow. If you have any interest in helping with that meal, please see Janice Cartwright or Hugh Lowe. And now, if you would, please join me for a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for this day and for allowing us all to gather here together in this community to worship you. I pray that you will move through us today and inspire us to leave here and take your kingdom into our community each and every single day. We thank you and we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed my chains are gone I Unending love 
Uh, hello. Uh, my name is David Cowan. Again, if you do not know me, I am the youth director here at White House First United Methodist Church. And you might be thinking, David, why are you here and not Brother Paul? It's a great question uh, that I can answer. This is Youth Sunday, as I said uh, during the announcements. Everything in this service is being done by youth. So obviously, if you're listening to this, you're not in the service. But uh, I do want to shout out those young people. We had 11 kids, 11 youth who completely led the service from start to finish with the music, with the announcements, the benediction, uh, prayer concerns, even the children's moments were led by youth. It was an absolutely amazing service. Uh, go ahead and check out, check that out on Facebook Live if you're interested in seeing all of the young people uh, leading the service. But with that, led me, the youth director, to do the sermon. So hello, and thank you for indulging me, and if you've made it this far, not turning off the pod as soon as you didn't hear Brother Paul uh, talking. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think a little bit. Think about someone in your life, to start off. Think about the people in your life. Have you met anyone that was very talented, and let's just say knew how talented they were. You know what I'm saying? Like they could sing or they could play the guitar, and they were very confident in how well they could play or sing or whatever it is. Maybe it's even sports. We see this with a lot of athletes. Like athletes have the biggest egos in the world, it seems like, right? Um, I knew a guy just like that when I was in high school. I went to youth group very much when I was a kid. I was very involved in my youth ministry. Uh, we went to every single conference event. If the conference event had something that the youth were at, my church was there. We went to Warmth and Winter and Summer Sizzler and uh, Hands and Feet, which was a little mini summer mission thing that they had at the end of summers. Every single event that they had at the conference, my church went to. And there was another church that at the time brought the biggest group every year. It seems like every year they brought 50 or 60 kids. I mean, they just brought a ton of kids. And that was Greenbrier, First United Methodist Church. And there was this one kid in that group. His name was Jackson. And he had some pipes on him. I mean, this kid could sing really, really well. And at these events, oftentimes there were bands or people singing or whatnot. And Jackson was very much one of the people. So I'd heard him sing uh, a few times, and he was very good, but he had this attitude about him all the time. And at the time, I thought that was just cockiness. Like, yeah, I never saw him smile. He always had his arms folded. He seemed to me like this type of kid that was just like, yeah, I can sing. I'm super talented. What are you? Who are you? I'm better than you. Uh, I've come to learn that that was not his attitude, but that's what I perceived. And so I didn't like this guy. I think it was my junior year, maybe my sophomore year. I had a uh, opportunity to sing with a large group. A bunch of different church had, churches had people in their youth groups that came together and did this big choral thing. It was a really awesome thing, uh, and I was I was involved in that. I was singing, and of course Jackson was there. And all it did was perpetuate this idea that I had about him already. Mind you, I had never even met this kid. Like, actually met him. Like, hello, my name is David. Hello, my name is Jackson. What do you like to do? Blah, blah, blah. I knew nothing about this kid other than that I didn't like him and that he was a big old meanie. Well, we sang together. 
It perpetuated it. He never smiled, had his arms crossed all the time. It was not a good time. Fast forward a couple years later, I'm going to Martin Methodist College. I go for my orientation, my freshman orientation. And who is there but this kid, Jackson? And I was like, are you kidding me? I have to deal with him for another four years? I want to be in the choir. I know he's probably going to be in the choir. Man, this is awful. And we got in the same group, and he still was just quiet, off to himself. What I thought was an I'm better than you attitude. But as you know, in the first few weeks of college, you start your friend groups start to form. So I start hanging out with my friend group. He's hanging out with his friend group. And probably less than a week into college, our groups seem to merge. And I'm like, man, this guy, I'm not going to be friends with him for four years. And then fast forward four weeks later, I have spent time with him. I've hung out with him. I've gotten to know him. And he has become one of my best friends. Four weeks into school, where four weeks prior, I couldn't stand this kid. Four weeks later, I'm considering him to be one of my best friends. And that relationship has remained to this day. Jackson, we graduated together. We lived together for a year. Uh, we That was sophomore year. We are still very, very close. He and his wife and their little son, my nephew, Lucas, they live up in Owensboro, Kentucky. He is a full-time music minister at Macedonia Baptist Church. He is, to this day, one of my most valued, one of my most close relationships that I have. He is a very kind, soft-spoken, loving individual. But because I never got the chance, no, 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 not never got the chance, because I was too ignorant and too selfish to get to know Jackson, this friendship, which has become one of my most cherished friendships that I've ever had in my life, almost never got the chance to happen. Because I was being a jerk. There's a television show that I have come to absolutely love. It is, it's called Ted Lasso. Uh, just a warning about Ted Lasso, if you're going to run to your, your televisions and watch it. Uh, it's got some colorful language. I will warn you ahead of time. But it is a beautiful show with beautiful messaging. Uh, and it's about a football club or a soccer team, as we would call it here in America, uh, in England. In the Premier League, and if you don't know what the Premier League is, is the most popular, the best, the highest level of soccer in the world are the, the, the soccer teams that make up the Premier League. And um, the, the ownership has changed from a man named Rupert to his now ex-wife, Rebecca. There was a, a messy divorce. Rupert was uh, unfaithful to his wife, and in the divorce, she got the club, and Rupert was no longer to have any ownership in the club. And the first thing she did when she took over ownership was to fire the previous manager of the team and to hire this guy who taught or who coached American football and had absolutely zero knowledge of soccer. She brought him over to coach this. Uh, he coached at the second level of college football, D3 college football. So he never coached adults before. He didn't coach professionally, but he had a lot of success when he was in this college program. So she brought him over and a lot of people off the rip, simply because he didn't know anything about soccer, absolutely hated Ted Lasso, including Rupert. 
Rebecca's ex-husband and the former owner of the club. And so um, Rebecca and Ted are meeting at this tiny little pub next to where Ted lives in Richmond, England, where there is a diehard fan base for AFC Richmond, the soccer team that Rebecca owns and Ted is now coaching. And in walks Rupert and his new 30 years younger than him girlfriend. Uh, And Rupert makes the announcement that she, with money that he gave her, has purchased shares in the club. And Rupert will now be attending and sitting in the owner's box every single week just to make sure Rebecca knows how badly she is running the team. And so Ted, not liking this, wanting to make sure Rebecca knows his support for her, challenges Rupert to a game of darts. Rupert, very good at darts. And he says to Rupert, if I win this game, or if you win this game, you can pick the lineup for the last two games of the season. But if I win, you can never step foot into the owner's box at Richmond as long as Rebecca is the owner of the club. And so Rupert agrees, knowing he's going to smoke this guy. And it's looking like that. Ted is in a bad shape. He looks to uh, a lady that works there, and he says, May, what do I need to win? And she said, you need two triple 20s and a bullseye in order to win. Which is, if you don't know anything about darts, just trust me, that is a very, very difficult three shots to make in a row. And so Ted starts going into a bit of a monologue. And he says, uh, one day he's driving his boy to school and he sees a quote by Walt Whitman on the side of a wall and it says, be curious, not judgmental. And he talks about how a lot of boys used to pick on him and belittle him. And he says, you know, it, it dawned on me when I saw this quote that those guys never once were curious about me. They thought they knew everything. They thought they had it all and so they were judgmental. They judged everyone and they judged everything, myself included. And what that led me to believe, or what that led me to realize, is that that had nothing to do with me and I needed to just be me. And then he goes on to throw two triple 20s and a bullseye to beat Rupert. It's a, the, whole, the whole pub erupts in congratulations. But it's a great, great message. We need not judge someone before we've ever met them, but instead be curious about them. Maybe they think differently than us, but instead of us putting them down for that, what if we asked them why and got their perspective on something that we have never really approached or acknowledged? What if we took into account other people's experiences and other people's perspectives as opposed to immediately writing them off because they might be a little different than us. At one point, Ted looks at Rupert and he says, uh, they were never curious because if they were curious, they might have asked me a question like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? To which I would have said, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from the ages of 10 to 16 until he passed away. And then throws the final dart in the bullseye to win the whole shebang. But again, the message of the clip that I'm referring to is still the same. Because see, we live in a world that promotes judgment first and curiosity, if it ever comes, comes second. 
We live in a world that encourages us to judge first, and once that judgment is passed, it doesn't offer opportunity for grace or for mercy. Nine times out of ten, when we have formed an opinion on somebody, the idea that they can change never crosses our mind. That is our opinion of this person forever. I was not the same person I am now in high school. I was a lot meaner. I was a lot crueler. I said things that I regret to people that I, I, I really cared about. And there are people now who don't like me, probably for good reason, and never will again because of the things that I said to them. And I wish, I just wish I could get through to them that I've changed and that I'm different and that I'm a better and nicer person. But see, that's not the world we live in. Judgment comes first, and there's no room for grace, no room for mercy. But this idea that that we live in in this world, that we walk with on a day-to-day basis, and yes, I mean even us, even me, especially me, this idea is the exact antithesis to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the opposite of what Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. There's a story about a woman at the temple um, that I think really sums this up really well. It comes out of John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, and it reads as follows. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of Mo- in the law Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But then Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his fingers. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So there's this woman who has been caught in adultery. Not accused. Not, uh, this isn't he said, she said. This isn't an accusation. She was caught in the act of committing what at the time was a crime. And they go up to Jesus and they say, hey, You, Mr. Love, Mr. Mercy, whatever. We have a rule book and it says we should kill this woman by throwing a bunch of stones at her. What do you say to that, you hippie? I'm paraphrasing in case you were unaware. And Jesus started bending down and writing in the sand. We don't know what he was writing. That is complete and utter speculation. And Paul never talks about it. No one ever talks about it. One of my favorite, just as a side note, one of my favorite speculations was from a sermon I heard one time. It said, I would like to think Jesus was bending down and writing their sins. 
Has anyone ever, has anyone ever pointed out something that was embarrassing that you had done? You know, that look you get on your face, that, that feeling in your gut, like, oh, no, don't bring this up again. I would like to think this guy who's so confident, got a big old rock in his hand, he's been practicing his aim, and then Jesus writes his sin, and he immediately is like, oh, oh, gosh, you know about that? Oh, no. But, again, that's all speculation. We don't know. That's my favorite speculation, though. Jesus gets up eventually and says, let you without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they begin to walk away. And Jesus says, who's left? Who is left to to show you judgment? Who is left to condemn you? And when she says no one, this is, I think, the powerful part, the most powerful part. There's a lot of powerful parts of the scripture. But I think this is the most powerful part. Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus gave us a blueprint on how to treat people. And this story is the perfect example. This is a woman who broke the law. And again, because we as a people, which apparently this has been a problem since at least first century Jerusalem, for some reason can't fathom the idea of grace, they are immediately ready to kill this woman. And Jesus steps in and the first thing he does is love this woman. Offer her grace and mercy that was so absent from the religious leaders. Not the town bullies, not uh, the, the police, not Roman guards, the religious leaders, the people in charge of the spiritual and faith development of their people. He shows this woman that love. He shows her grace. And not once does he judge this woman. But this isn't the only story where this is present. This is seen all throughout the gospel. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He stole from his own people. And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus in the tree, he didn't point at him and laugh. He didn't point him out to a group and say, pick on that guy. He's the worst. He didn't call out his sin in front of a a ton of people. He said, hey man, I'm pretty hungry. Why don't you and me go get a bite to eat? The Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus didn't go up and say, leave now, you Samaritan trash. Jesus didn't say, what's a woman doing without a man's permission? Jesus didn't call her out immediately for all of her wrongdoings. He said, hey, I could use some water. And when she questioned why a Jew was talking to a Samaritan... He offered her eternal life. There was a centurion who had a sick servant who came to ask Jesus for healing. If you don't know what a centurion is, it's a Roman guard. So this is the enforcement, the law enforcement behind the organization that is currently terrorizing and imprisoning Jesus' own people. They're not believers in monotheism. They're certainly not believers in the Hebrew God. And yet Jesus doesn't call out any of that or say, okay, I'll make you a trade. I'll heal your servant 
if you release four of my friends or, all right, talk to your governor and get him to, to leave this occupancy so we can have our kingdom back. No, he says, okay. He actually congratulates the centurion on his level of faith and he heals his servant. You can even look at the disciples that Jesus carried with him. Matthew, like Zacchaeus, was a tax collector, a person who was considered to be against his own people. And then Judas was the guy who would eventually sell out his supposed friend and lead him to be tortured and murdered. And yet Jesus walked with them, healed with them, loved them, washed their feet, and shared with them grace, eternal life, and a love that is unmatched by anybody. And even if you're like, okay, well, that's just four books of the Bible. I can judge people because it's all over the Bible where people judge people. It's really not. Three of the most influential figures in the entire 66 books are people that probably should have been in jail, that did some pretty awful stuff, but God used them anyway. Moses, he had a speech impediment. He wasn't comfortable in front of crowds, let alone a crowd of two million people, but he led those people out of Egypt. He stood up to one of the most powerful systems in the world at the time, which was Egypt. David was an adulterer. He used power to his advantage. He was greedy. And then Paul wasn't even a believer in Jesus. He thought he was a heretic and actively led the persecution of anyone who claimed to follow him. And all three of those people have in common that they were murderers. They took the lives of innocent people, some of them more than once. And yet, every single one of them was offered love, was met with grace, and were used to be three of the most influential people, not only in the Bible, but in the existence of our religion as a whole. I think one of the most powerful stories from the New Testament that we don't talk about often enough is some of Jesus' words when he's being crucified, which is, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If Jesus can pray for and ask forgiveness for the people who were actively torturing and killing him, then why do we feel like we have the right to refuse to associate with, to look down upon and to denigrate people who live a different lifestyle or align with a different political affiliation than we do? Jesus gave us a blueprint on how to act, on how to treat people that think differently, how to treat people that are sinners, which we all are, by the way. He gave us a simple blueprint. He lived it in the three years of his ministry. He showed us, gave us a how-to, how to treat people whether they agree with us or not. And we are not living up to that blueprint. We have failed at following that blueprint especially today. 
We live in a world today where someone's uh, letter next to their name when they vote immediately affects how we feel about them. The way someone identifies immediately affects how we feel about them. We live in a world where all we do is judge, judge, judge. We hear Democrat and we form an opinion. We hear Republican and we form an opinion. We hear Muslim, Jew, Christian, atheist, and we automatically form an opinion, a judgment about people that we don't even know. We don't know how close they are to their family. We don't know their favorite color, their favorite genre of music, how well they treat other people. We have no idea. We don't know anything, haven't shown an ounce of curiosity. And we've casted judgment that isn't even ours to cast. All because of a simple identification. Because of one singular adjective that describes that person. And that is the opposite of what Jesus teaches us to do in the Bible. And this isn't to say, this does not mean that I'm saying you should just go out and like let anyone do whatever they want and just be okay with everything. Live and let live is not something that I prescribe to. I think accountability is important. If we know someone and we love someone, we should hold them accountable. But I think where we have gotten confused is we have put accountability first. And I think we've confused what accountability really is and mistaken it for judgment. When you look at the gospel, when you look, go back to this story... There are three things that I think we should notice. One is that both things are present. Accountability and love and grace and mercy. But the order in which we do them is not the order in which Jesus does them. See, the first thing Jesus does is show grace and love to this woman. The second thing that Jesus does is hold her accountable. The very last sentence, the neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and sin no more. Accountability is important, but accountability is secondary to showing someone the love and the grace and the mercy that Jesus showed. And the third thing I think that's important to notice is that judgment is absent in this passage. Accountability is necessary, but love should be first and judgment should be absent in our regular lives, in our regular interactions, and in how we meet people, how we talk to people, how we see people that we haven't yet met. The church has been a place that historically has closed its doors more than they've opened it. People have judged us before they ever got to know us. I, I know plenty of people who immediately were turned off when they found out that I was a youth pastor. So we've been not only victims of it, but the church itself, the American globe, the global church, not just the American church, has a history of doing just that 
to a variety of different people. Even the Methodist Church, which is the one of the most accepting and loving churches, had a massive split in the late 19th century because the Methodist Church didn't want to allow black people. But we need to be different. We are called to be different. Jesus tells us exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. This isn't something that is my opinion. This is not something that uh, I've made up. This is what the Bible teaches. Jesus always leads with love and with grace and with mercy. Jesus never shows judgment on even some of the worst people in Scripture. And Jesus calls people to accountability, to go and to sin no more, to live a life worthy. But that is secondary to showing those same people the love and the grace that they desperately need. See, we as a church and as members of the body of Christ are meant to mirror the life of Jesus, not to be the antithesis of it. I know I have failed that multiple times. I know everyone has failed that multiple times. So the challenge today is to find out ways to figure out how you can set your own pride aside, to set, set aside your own presuppositions about someone based off of whatever it is that defines them and learn how to be curious about people. Learn why people believe what they believe. Learn why people love who they love. Learn why people are in the position that they're in. Learn how to love them. To show them the grace that no one else seems to be willing to. And learn the difference between judgment and and accountability. And remove that judgment from your vernacular entirely. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us. We thank you for allowing us to gather here and to worship you, God. We thank you so much for entrusting us Entrusting this church with your call and your commission. God, I'm sorry that we at times have failed. I'm sorry that we can't be as perfect as you would like us to be. God, I just pray that you can allow us grace moving forward. Show us how to properly love people. And show us what it looks like to truly live like Jesus did and not like we've been living. God, we love you, and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray.